Well, Mr Bonney, ladies and gentlemen, I, I should clarify that about being uh, elected unopposed last year. The, the, there were other parties standing in the election. <laughs> it was uh, only unopposed once it got to the, uh, once it got to the Parliament, but uh, it was a vigorous uh, democratic campaign with uh, a very satisfactory outcome. But uh, <laughs> can, can I say thank you, Mr Bonney, and thank you to the Commonwealth Club of, uh, of California, which is the oldest... Uh, and largest public affairs forum uh, in the country. Uh, it's an honour to, to speak here as, as First Minister of Scotland. Now, Scotland and the United States uh, share many ties of family, friendship, culture, ideas, trade, commerce. Woodrow Wilson, uh, one of 23, 23 United States presidents who could claim Scots or, or Scots-Irish descent, once remarked that Every line of strength in American history is a line coloured with Scottish blood. And from time to time, various surveys have suggested, and I, I really love this, uh, this figure, uh, suggests that almost 30 million, 30 million people in these United States claim Scots or Scots-Irish ancestry. Although the official census figure is only around 10 million. Uh, and I just love that concept. You know, it means there's... There's 20 million people across the United States who perhaps aren't officially Scottish but want to be Scottish. <laughs> what greater compliment has ever been paid <laughs> to any nation? So as far as we are concerned, with due deference to the official census figures of the United States, we'll settle for the, the, the 30 million and more. So I take it there's a huge compliment that so many millions of uh, additional Americans uh, are claiming links with Scotland. They are very, very welcome to do so. And incidentally, I, I think that number might increase uh, after the launch of the, uh, the film Brave, which was premiered in uh, Los Angeles last night. Uh, it's the most uh, fantastic collaboration uh, between California and Scotland with Disney Pixar's vision inspired by Scottish myths and landscapes and being realised with the help of a, a largely... Uh, Scottish cast uh, is an extraordinary film and uh, I commend it to you ladies and gentlemen you know, find some children to go with as an excuse <laughs> it's, uh, it's uh, really quite scary you know, not for the kids, the adults uh, were the ones who were scared <laughs> uh, but it's a, an, an amazing film and does Scotland and uh, proud and well done to, to Disney and Pixar uh, the Scottish influence of course in California goes, uh, goes back a long way uh, the railroads, which uh, did so much to open up the, the West, were to a huge extent funded by Scottish Investment Trust. Uh, my wife, who's with me here in, in San Francisco, is playing homage tomorrow to John Muir from Dundabar, uh, the great and far-sighted environmentalist, by visiting the National Preserve, a redwood trees named after him just north of where we are today. In Scotland, uh, to celebrate the anniversary, we're planning a major extension to the John Muir Way, it will be a long-distance footpath starting near Dunbar uh, to mark the centenary of Muir's death in, in 2014. Now, John Muir had a view, and, uh, and that was encapsulated in a wonderful quote. John Muir said, everybody needs beauty as well as bread. Uh, and that's a, a fine expression, of course, of the need for uh, sustainability. Uh, and the concern for the environment, of course, is one of the the joint and shared concerns of California and Scotland, together with a passion, of course, for innovation and an internationalist outlook. 
One of the uh, uh, famous uh, people from thereabouts who was uh, proud of his Scots and Scots-Irish roots, of course, was John Steinbeck, born in Salinas, studied at Stanford, a Californian who was deeply proud of uh, his ancestry. Uh, famously, he used uh, lines from Robert Burns's poem To a Mouse uh, to uh, title his fifth novel of Mice and Men. But Moosey, that know thy lane, in proving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes of mice and men ath gang agley, and leave us not but grief and pain for promised joy. The Commonwealth Club of California was actually the first institution to recognise Steinbeck's talent, uh, awarding a prize to his third no novel in 1934. And I've traced a quote uh, from Steinbeck that suggests he was less pleased by this than perhaps he should have been. He said, quote, This is the first, and God willing, the last prize that I shall ever receive. <laughs> well, it's... Uh, <laughs> It wasn't perhaps the greatest forecast from John Steinbeck because he went on to many, many more, including the Nobel Prize, of course, three decades later. In 1964, Steinbeck embarked on a, a correspondence with the, the recently widowed Jackie Kennedy. Uh, and it was a correspondence which has a fantastic exchange of, of letters. And in one of the letters, Jackie Kennedy says to, to, writes to Steinbeck, of course, she says, uh, Ireland, like Scotland, is a lost cause. And Steinbeck wrote back, you talked of Scotland as a lost cause. That's not true. Scotland is a cause unwon. So uh, tonight, uh, I want to talk about the unwon cause. A wonderful way of putting it, and what I want to do this evening is to outline why the cause of Scotland of independence for Scotland is one which will be one when it's put to the people in a couple of years' time. In doing so, I'll make it clear that independence is the, the best way, in my estimation, of attacking other unwon causes which all governments must fight and fight continually, creating jobs, opportunities, delivering for the common weal of our people, promoting good international relations uh, abroad. But first, I want to make a straightforward case. Scotland is a nation which has made a, a substantial contribution to the world and has a huge amount to offer the world in the future. And I think it's fair to say that that fact is increasingly recognised from businesses around the world. If Scotland were an independent nation, substantially due to our oil and gas reserves, we would have the sixth highest per capita gross domestic product in the OECD. That would still be behind the United States of America, you'd be believed to know, in fourth place. Indeed, California, if you separated out California, would be in third place, <laughs> but uh, ahead of the United Kingdom, which currently ranks 16th. Even if you discounted oil and gas, Scotland is the third most prosperous part of the United Kingdom after London and the southeast of England. Now, much of that success is based on innovation. Uh, like California, uh, our economy looks to the future. We have 5.2 million people in Scotland, a, a smaller population than the, the San Francisco Bay Area, a seventh of the population of California as a whole. 
Yet according to the Times Higher Educational Supplement, we have uh, five universities in the world's top 200, even more per head of population than California, although I should say that California does have two out of the top three. <laughs> we also rank first in the, in the world in terms of research productivity per unit of GDP, second in the world in terms of research impact. Eric Smith, the chief executive of Google, spoke in Scotland last August, uh, pointing out that he had personally invested in a, a number of Scottish computer science companies. I quite like that. When somebody says, I have personally invested in a number of companies, then I sort of sit up and take notice rather more than you might just of a, a general good-natured forecast. And what Eric Smith said was, quote, many people don't know how strong the initiatives are in computer sciences in the Scottish universities. There's every reason to believe there'll be quite a renaissance here. And what uh, Mr. Smith had noticed was the quality of work being done in areas such as informatics, software electronics, by leading Scottish universities and companies. Uh, our life science research, of course, achieved global fame uh, more than a decade ago now when the Roslyn Institute cloned uh, Dolly the Sheep. Uh, if you visit the, the wonderful, and I do think you should, as often and as, you, as you possibly can, not just visit Scotland, but, uh, but uh, when, you, when you go as part of the, the, the Brave Tour, which we'll be launching shortly, then you should call into the, the National Museum of Scotland. It's absolutely fantastic. I mean, you've got the, uh, the array of, uh, of Scottish inventions. You have the uh, Alexander Fleming's Nobel Prize for, for uh, discovering penicillin. Uh, you've got uh, James Watt's uh, first uh, steam engine. You've got John Logie Baird's first colour television, uh, invented in 1932. And right alongside them, you've got Dolly the Sheep. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, but uh, we're still, we are ranked number one in the world in terms of the impact of our life science research relative to our GDP. Uh, and the researchers, and this is an important point, have an extremely uh, substantial tradition of working collaborati collaboratively with, with, with industry. You know, when I was a lad uh, growing up in, uh, in Linlithgow, I, I sort of stumbled across the, the fact that uh, Scotland seemed to have invented the uh, uh, a great number of things, uh, invented the modern world, according to uh, an American... Uh, uh, we like quoting uh, uh, an American uh, writer saying that, because uh, uh, we would like to have said it ourselves, but we like quoting the American. It sounds more modest, but uh, when Herman said that Scotland had invented the modern world, he had a, uh, an area of, uh, of truth in it. And so when I was a boy growing up in the Livgo, I found Scotland had invented all these things because nobody actually told me why we'd invented all these things. You know, was it because we were more inventive uh, than anyone else? And, and then when I got to think about it later in life, I, I realised that there was actually two aspects to it. One was the education system, which was you know, superior to anything else, which educated more people. You know, the more people you educate, the more you'll invent. Uh, it increases the, the number of people who are able to invent things. Uh, but secondly, and equally importantly, in the 19th century in particular, Scotland had the most advanced capital markets in the world. And if you look at most, not all, but most of the great Scottish inventions, like the uh, steam engine for that matter, or a range of others, uh, then they were invented as part of, a, of an industrial process. Uh, and therefore, the collaboration of our researchers in life science with industry is part of a, a long-standing Scottish tradition, which sees innovation as part not just of an academic, but of an industrial process. One of the companies I'll be visiting in my, my state tomorrow is LifeScan, a Californian company which employs more than a 
uh, a thousand people in Scotland already, and many of them are, are conducting world-leading research on diabetes, one of the great diseases and afflictions of the, the modern era. So we have key strengths in Scotland in tourism, financial services, food and drink. In fact, one of Scotland's greatest inventions saw its exports increase by no less than 20% last year. The global whisky sales <laughs> were worth $4.5 billion <laughs> in 2011. I'm delighted to say, incidentally, the United States of America remains the top Scotch whisky market in the world, <laughs> which is a, a tribute to the excellent taste and discretion of the, of the citizens of these United States. But you have to watch out. You know, Brazil, Singapore are catching up. So, you know, so really what I'm saying to the Commonwealth Club is you must do your duty by drinking your full quota. Because <laughs> I want the United States to say in the world's number one. <laughs> in the uh, energy sector, in which our, our chairman this evening played a, a most distinguished role, Aberdeen is the largest centre in the world after Houston. Scotland has the ambition and potential to become the renewable energy powerhouse of the continent of Europe. The Scottish Government is committed to, to meeting business needs and works together in a coordinated way to support business. And finally and crucially, we can offer a great quality of life. The vibrant city is close to extraordinary landscapes. Like California, we recognize the importance of a good lifestyle in attracting skilled workers. Unlike California, we can't promise constant sunshine. <laughs> Although I did some research today and found out that one comparison which might make up for the slight dearth and sunshine is the fact you can get a golf club membership, a quality golf club in Scotland for 10% of the cost in this state of California. <laughs> so it's not altogether surprising that we hear the news, and this is something of an exclusive since it's hot off the press in the last hour, that Ernst & Young carry out an annual business attractiveness survey, and the 2012 edition has just been released, and I'll read you some of the highlights. I'm tempted to read the whole thing. It's so fantastic, but... <laughs> But basically, for the second year running, Scotland has outperformed every other part of the UK in generating employment from foreign direct investment. Uh, to quote the uh, Ernst & Young, job creation is the true measure of a successful FDI strategy, and on this count, Scotland is currently winning hands down. Uh, what is impressive about the latest survey is it reflects our ambition that an increasing number of uh, FDI and foreign direct investments into Scotland uh, should be in research and development, uh, which has been one of our long-standing aims. And there's evidence in this latest survey today that that is uh, being successful. Uh, and uh, I suppose, uh, given that the Scottish football team isn't performing uh, at all, actually, at the present moment, but we have great hopes for the future. The, the, the fact that we're beating London in foreign direct investment just now gives us some compensation and satisfaction. The Foreign Direct Investment magazine this year ranked Edinburgh and Glasgow as first and second in Europe in its assessment of large cities of the future. And the list of international companies which have invested in Scotland very recently includes such great names as Amazon, Avalox, Ceridian, Dell, State Street and many others. And of course they join huge Californian companies such as Hewlett-Packard, Oracle, Cisco and Chevron which have been based in Scotland 
for a considerable period of time. Uh, so one of the messages in this visit is we want more companies to join these successful companies building success in Scotland. Uh, so yesterday, the Scottish, Scottish, Scotland, Scottish Development International, the, the Scottish Government's Inward Investment Arm, it launched a marketing campaign to encourage more companies to invest in Scotland. I've written personally to 70 of California's largest companies to highlight how Scotland could benefit their business. That letter will be followed up with direct contact with our SDI team in California and in Glasgow. Now, our aim is to set out the fundamental strengths of the Scottish economy or good quality of life and to highlight other key facts. Uh, the business operating costs for quality businesses uh, can be some 30% lower than in other parts of the United Kingdom. So the message is clear. Scotland is open for business and the business of Scotland is business. Perhaps, however, the best example of for Scotland's ambition, innovation and internationalism is what I was speaking about with Governor Brown today, is the work on climate change. In 2009, the Scottish Parliament unanimously passed the toughest climate change legislation in the world. We committed ourselves to a 42% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2020 and 80% reduction by 2050. Scotland is committed to producing enough energy from renewable resources by 2020 to meet all of our own electricity demand. The potential is certainly there. We have 10% of the Europe's wave power resources, 25% of offshore wind and tidal power resources, which isn't too bad for a country with 1% of the European Union's population. And as a, an international statement of our ambition in marine energy, we've established the $15 million Saltire Prize, one of the largest commercial challenge prizes in the world in conjunction with National Geographic, the first time that the world's greatest educational charity has allied itself with a government. We've received some 150 expressions of interest from more than 30 countries, a growing number of declared competitors in that position, uh, we now have a situation where the Euro European Marine Energy Centre, which is based in the Orkney Islands, is the world's only fully accredited test facility for grid-connected wave and tidal converters, where Glasgow is the leading European base uh, for offshore wind research, and where Strathclyde University's Technology and Innovation Centre is a £100 million hub uh, for thousands of researchers and industry to work together in pioneering this technology. In fact, uh, there are now more working wave and tidal devices uh, in the waters around Scotland than in the rest of the world put together. Uh, so it's an area of uh, huge interest, investment and potential for the future of Scotland. All 12 of Scotland's universities have formed uh, the Energy Technology Partnership Earlier this year, we signed a collaboration with Abu Dhabi's prestigious Mazda Energy Institute. I read recently about the, uh, the origins of California's Silicon Valley. Much of the, the credit uh, for that uh, extraordinary growth is often given to Frederick Terman. And one of his great contributions as Dean of Engineering at Stanford University it was to expand uh, the university's capability in high-technology sectors. Looking back on that remarkable growth in his later years, Terman reflected that, quote, when we set out to create a community of technical scholars 
in Silicon Valley. There wasn't much there. Uh, and the rest of the world looked awfully big. Now a, rest of the, a lot of the rest of the world is here in Silicon Valley. I'd like something similar to, to happen in Scotland. When planning for the European Marine Energy Centre started around a decade ago, it, it was hard to, to see if it was going to be successful at all. Viewed from the islands of Orkney, off the northern coast of Scotland, uh, the rest of the world doesn't look awfully big. It can look also awfully far away. But at the moment, in that, uh, in that perhaps unlikely sphere, we have now achieved the position I mentioned a few seconds ago when there are more different types of wave and tidal devices in the waters around the Orkney Islands and Scotland than in the rest of the world combined. The Pentland Firth is now the world's largest commercial-scale marine energy site. An independent report from Scottish Renewables estimated there had been more than a billion pounds of investment in the renewable sector in Scotland during the previous year. Professor Ian Bryden of Robert Gordon University in Aberdeen coined the phrase that Scotland's Pentland Firth was the, quote, Saudi Arabia of tidal power because of the vast potential resource that its uh, currents uh, contain. So I'd say that in terms of technological development, Scotland is becoming the Silicon Valley of marine energy worldwide. And having been at the heart of the marine engineering revolution in the 19th century, at one point making some quarter of the world shipping, we are now placing ourselves at the heart of the marine engineering revolution of the 21st century, uh, the marine engineering revolution which is going to engineer and design and develop, install and maintain and service the, the great machines which are going to power uh, much of the energy needs of the coming century. So as you have gathered, we would say that there are few parts in the world which are, have the level of ambition in their plans for renewable energy as Scotland has, but California is one such place. California's renewable energy target of meeting 33% of electricity consumption by 2020 is the most ambitious of any state in the United States. The 80% target for reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 matches Scotland's exactly. Uh, like Scotland, you have a political consensus behind your targets. Actions started by Governor Schwarzenegger are being maintained and built on by Governor Brown. Now, in this situation... Uh, of course, Scotland tries to do what it can to promote uh, international consensus, and that's particularly important with uh, the summit in Rio starting uh, tomorrow. And so we thought to ourselves, how could we influence world leaders to be as far-sighted as the present and immediate past governor of uh, California? Uh, and so just after the Copenhagen summit a few years ago, we devised a, a 2020 whisky. 42% proof, <laughs> which goes to uh, those countries and those world leaders who are willing to commit themselves to the 42% target by 2020. <laughs> I'm delighted to tell you that one of the few politicians in the world who now has a bottle of that whiskey is Governor Jerry Brown, and I presented it to him <laughs> this very morning in Sacramento. Uh, I know that uh, Angela Merkel is desperate to get her hands on a bottle. <laughs> But I've made it absolutely clear to, the, uh, to Germany that uh, the 40% target is not enough. They have to go all the way to 42% before that bottle of whiskey can be theirs. 
there's a serious, hugely serious point uh, in all of this uh, that Governor Brown and myself were uh, discussing. That a time when you know, international financial storm clouds are not just gathered but uh, burst upon us and where the recovery seems elusive and where there are a whole range of, uh, of areas that are required and where every single one of us, I suspect, uh, economists, non-economists, human beings <laughs> uh, as well, you know, find uh, uh, the frustration of, of not seeing the degree of action and joint concern that is demanded by circumstances. It is the understandable pressure uh, for people to take their eyes off the, the climate change ball to, to say, well, the immediate pressures of uh, a world recession, a financial collapse, the difficulties in rebuilding confidence in financial structures are such that surely the issues of climate change and greenhouse gases somehow seem very distant. But ladies and gentlemen, they are not distant. They are very immediate. Uh, and many, many places in the world are already feeling their dramatic uh, effects. Uh, and therefore, despite everything, uh, it's my view, it's the view of your, your governor, that we have, to, uh, we have to set that steady course uh, in, in terms of having the ambition to tackle a fundamental challenge to the safety and future of this planet, as well as dealing with the immediate international financial crisis. I, uh, California and Scotland, I, I think, can contribute a huge amount to the technologies which tackle climate change. And Governor Brown and I have agreed today to set up a working party of officials from our administrations uh, to work on that very point. <clears throat> if you think about the communication revolution of the 20 and 21st centuries, some of the most important early developments, the telephone, the television, the fax machine, were developed in Scotland. But a massive proportion of the revolutionary recent technologies in programming, internet search, tablet computers, social networking have been developed here on the west coast of America. Now, my belief and hope is that Scotland and California can use that appetite for invention to tackle what may be the most important technological challenge of the 21st century, how we manage that transition to a low-carbon economy. And as developed countries succeed in making these technological breakthroughs, as we shall, in bringing the costs of green energy production into line with market realities, I believe it's important that we recognise our obligation to help the developing world grow in an environmentally sustainable manner. Earlier this month, I launched Scotland's Climate Justice Fund, together with Mary Robinson, the former President of Ireland, and the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. Uh, that is a, a cause in which I've taken uh, to as many places as possible, uh, and I know that uh, we find a, a willing audience here in California. Now, all of these run through Scotland's economic strengths, advantages, highlights, things we do well, things we have done well, our track record of innovation, our contribution to world development, our wish, wish to, to seek an alliance and friendship with other interested parties, some of the answers to the problems which beset this planet, raises a hugely interesting question. <clears throat> if Scotland is able to try and hopefully to succeed in, in showing global leadership on one of the most significant environmental, economic and moral issues facing the planet, that of climate change, why on earth shouldn't we have control of our own taxes, welfare system uh, and foreign policy? 
I noticed that Paul Krugman, when he spoke to this club last month, was scathing about the European response or lack of response to promoting economic recovery. Here in Scotland, in Scotland, we are seriously affected by the excessive austerity of the UK government's tax and spending policies of which Paul Krugman spoke. We've actually made a, a pretty fair fist of supporting growth in hugely difficult circumstances. The recession in Scotland was uh, not as deep or as long as elsewhere in the United Kingdom. But right now we are promoting recovery with one hand tied behind our backs. We can't adjust tax rate, we can't borrow prudently, prudently even for capital investment to invest in infrastructure, and a point of agreement as governments uh, internationally focus on the necessity for a growth strategy should surely be uh, that capital investment in, in key projects and infrastructure and increasing the, capacity, the productive capacity of a country is a fundamental difference uh, to revenue spending and the necessity for bringing revenue budgets into line with reality. Uh, that capital spending is of huge importance, whether it be private sector, public sector, in terms of maintaining, and at a time, of course, where many, many private companies, through lack of confidence, are assessing, amassing large quantities of capital, uh, the public sector has a substantial role uh, in leading infrastructure investment. So these uh, positions that we have, the things that we cannot do in Scotland at the present moment, of course, have a direct effect. I mean, they have an effect on the opportunities for our young people, the welfare of our most vulnerable members of our society, uh, and therefore it is of not just irritation but huge frustration that the Scottish Government do not have the ability and power at the present moment to, to meet these human needs with decisive action. What's the simplest encapsulation of the case for independence? I think the simplest encapsulation is this that the people best placed to make decisions about Scotland's future are those who choose to live and work in Scotland. Nobody, but nobody, will care more about the, the welfare and benefit and the, the common weal of the Scottish people uh, than those who live and work in Scotland. And that belief is at the, the centre of a, a civic, inclusive case that we're putting forward for independence. Uh, Scottish independence and the cause of independence is not based on where people come from, it's based on where we're going together as a country. Now, as America has done for many generations, including for many, many millions of Scots, we are proud to extend a welcome for, for those who choose to call Scotland their home. And it follows from the fact that we are very much at ease with the reality that nations are both independent and interdependent. Internationalism is part of our DNA, something that any Californian should understand full well. An independent Scotland would be an active member of the international community, would be a member of the United Nations, the European Union. We would still share a, a currency union with the remaining members of the United Kingdom. We would cooperate closely with nations from around the world. <clears throat> and, of course, we would remain close friends of nations, such as the United States, with which we have such a long-lasting ties of trade, of family, of friendship. The United States will remain our biggest trading partner, our biggest foreign investor, and the biggest tourism market outside of the current United Kingdom. The United Kingdom currently is an incorporating union. And the difficulty of an incorporating union is that one nation, by virtue of size, will always prevail in policy decisions over the others. I think it's an anachronism in the modern age. When the United Nations was founded, it had 51 member countries. 
Now there are almost 200. As recently as 1990, Europe had 35 countries, now as 50. Of the 27 countries which currently make up the European Union, six of them didn't exist as independent states before 1990. <clears throat> and independence with the, the right to participate as an equal on international stage appears more and more like Scotland's normal and natural state of being. Now that's why I believe as First Minister that Scotland will choose to be independent in 2014. With greater powers, we could do more to improve the prosperity and well-being of our people. We would re-enter the community of nations on a basis of equality, responsibility and friendship. We would fulfil our duties as a good global citizen. Or as Thomas Jefferson said, we are a people capable of self-government and worthy of it. Or to finally quote Scotland's bard Robert Burns, for all that and all that, it's coming yet. For all that.